that is I was uh, out till almost 10 o'clock last night and then an hour drive home uh, after doing my uh, presentation up at the HE Training Center in Frisco. And I'll be honest with you, I'm tired, the voice is tired, and um, doing the splicing shows takes considerably more work than just uh, doing some commentary and listener questions. So I'm going to take a little bit of a break today, hopefully you'll indulge me with that, but I've got some interesting questions. One came from last night, and it's going to be the first question we do today, and um, I won't answer it now, but I'll tell you what it's going to be. It was an interesting question, and it was, um, how many people died during the Great Depression? I don't even have an answer for you, but I have an interesting answer to the the, uh, the concept to share with you here in just a minute. Before we do that, though, let's knock out our housekeeping. Uh, first of all, this is episode 381 of the Survival Podcast. It is a, I think it's a, a Thursday, February the 18th, 2010 as we rock on with the Survival Podcast. We're getting very close to our 300th episode. As always, we want to make sure that we take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to keep the show around and help keep it available to you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. Uh, they provide everything you need as a prepper. Let me just put it to you that way. That's why it's called Ready Made Resources. An exceptional selection of things for the solar power enthusiast. Their catalog alone, you might as well consider it as a, uh, call it an ebook on how solar-powered systems work, and a pretty extensive one at that, plus a good source of materials. And not just solar and wind, folks. Anything else you could possibly want, I guarantee you can find it at Ready-Made Resources. Check them out. They're great guys. Take real good care of the TSPers that do business with them. Next up today is Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical has all of the tactical stuff you're looking for. Those cool knives, those cool bags, you name it, they've got it. And they do a great job on customer service as well. Um, I've heard from quite a few people who have done business with Sawtack and said, hey, these are great people to do business with. So with that, we'll move on to the next uh, thing in our housekeeping today. I remind you to check out the TSP Gear Shop. we got some new stuff coming up in the next month. It's going to be pretty cool. We've got a bag coming on board pretty soon that I think you guys are going to dig. Um, but right now, we still have the T-shirts, the coins, the hats, you name it. Show off your TSP affiliation with Pride. Check out the gear shop to do that. Uh, I want to tell you guys the uh, contest for um, Dirt Time yesterday. Uh, you have three winners. Uh, the third winner has not been uh, announced yet because it happened after I left the house to go to Frisco yesterday. Or not Frisco, actually, Farmer's Branch. Um, I guess I got accustomed to saying Frisco, but um, so the last winner won pretty late in the day. I haven't emailed them yet to let them know they've won. The other two have been emailed, so can't play that contest anymore. It's over. I look forward to seeing you folks there. My big advice, though, if you want to go to Dirt Time, I know that it's February, and Dirt Time's not till June. They're going to sell out very, very soon. So I don't have any more to give away. I don't have any in my back pocket. The only way one's going to come up is if one of the people that have uh, said they want to go uh, ends up with a life event that keeps them from going now that already want and gives up their thing. Other than that, um, I don't have any more free ones, and there won't be any more free ones. 
And if you don't bite your seat soon, you won't be able to go. I know Wyoming's a big trip for some folks, can't make it, etc. I understand. All I'm telling you is if you're thinking about it, make a decision now, uh, because the episode of uh, Wilderness Way that features it just came out, usually it's not long after that, it completely sells out. I think they're limiting it to 175 attendees this year, which is more than they've ever allowed before because they have a bigger venue, bigger location. Uh, it's still a relatively small and select group. Love to see you there. So from there, I want to remind you to consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you uh, have not already. Uh, Member's Brigade is an outstanding program at this point. I, I worked really hard to try to turn it into something more than, you know, charity to support the show. It's something I never wanted it to be. Right now, you get discounts and discount programs from 15 participating vendor partners. There's, I, I, If you do business with half of them and just take advantage of the discounts, it, that'll cover your membership alone. Uh, there's also an assortment of ebooks, and of course, ebooks are electronic, download, read on demand. Uh, they're PDF. You don't need any kind of special reader for them. Anything. I've been asked about that. Um, there's over $100 worth of ebooks. There's 20 videos that are for the members only, videos on things like uh, how to do basic system of Russian-style striking, um, how to be a better rifleman in your own home with some simple drills. Uh, it, it's a great program. I've worked really hard to make it a great program. Uh, so I, I ask you to consider supporting the show at 20 cents an episode, uh, which is what it comes out to at $50 a year. That said, um, I just ran a special. And someone took advantage of that special and did something kind of blew me away. I'm really kind of shocked on it. And I'm going to run a, I wouldn't call it a contest. I, I, I'm going to evaluate people to receive this. This gentleman said that he's financially able to, uh, to purchase members of the gate, already has done so. And he would like to give away two memberships um, to listeners who can't afford to join but would like to. Then he sent me checks for three memberships. I guess he decided to give a little bit more. That's that's awesome. And his name is is Brian and I won't give his last name unless I hear back from him and he wants his last name given out. I think most people prefer not to have that done, but Brian's a pretty awesome guy. So here's what I'm going to do. If um I'm going to do this though for people who have been contributors uh, on our forum. Uh people with at least 50 posts. Now don't go out and try to get up to 50 posts real quick unless you're like 49 or something. Uh, but I'm looking for people that already have been contributors to our forum. And for one reason or another, you haven't been able to afford to join, but you've wanted to. Not just like how you would if it was free, but you've wanted to. But you really just have said to yourself, I've got debt to pay off, I'm unemployed, whatever. I, I want only those people today to participate in this. This is, If you're not on the forum, um, don't do this. This is oh, I'm going to check. Send me an email and put... Uh, Members Brigade gift in the subject line. And I know I'm going to get more than three, and I'm not doing this on a race, so don't race. I'm going to do, I'm going to take these emails till tomorrow. In fact, I'll take them until, uh, I'll do, on Monday I'll announce the three recipients. Um, so I'll take them through the weekend. Send me an email with a, in a paragraph. Tell me a little bit about why you would like to receive this and what situation you're in. Don't tell me your life story, please. I won't have time to read it. Uh, six sentences. I'm, you know, been on the point since and working on our debt since or whatever. And I'll read them and I'll do my best to select the, uh, the three best ones out of that group. Um, please don't be offended if you send me one and don't win. It doesn't mean that I don't think you're worthy or anything. It just means I have three to do this with and, um, 
I have to pick three out of the group. And I thought of a lot of different ways to do this, and I thought, you know what, the, the, it, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's something we, that should be done in return for people who have been genuine contributors to the community in spite of their situation. And I think there's quite a few people on the forum that fit that mold. Um, so if you're listening today, I want to hear from you. And you can, uh, I wouldn't call it win, I'd call it receive a gift from a, a fellow listener and a fellow member of your community of a free year of the Member Support Brigade. And, and so I know it went a little bit long today, but, um, you know, I wanted to really do justice to the gift that Brian's give, I'll, giving. I'll, I'll announce that tomorrow, and I'll put that in the form, too. I want as many people as possibly can participate in that. I'll make a list, and maybe other listeners will want to do this in the future, and, and we'll have people that uh, are, are in line for these gifts. Because I know there's some people out there that are unemployed and, you know, you don't have any money, and, you know, you're, you're barely getting by, and I don't want those people joining my brigade. I'm not, I'm not doing this just for money. I'm doing this to help people, folks, and uh, it's really cool to see somebody step up and do that. All right, so moving on. Uh, the first question that I mentioned I was going to answer today came from a gentleman last night in, in the audience, and I have to say that he didn't exactly ask the question at really an appropriate time during the presentation. I wasn't really talking about people dying during hard economic conditions or anything. He just kind of popped up with it. Um, but it's not usual that I get a question that I just go, I don't have any idea. And we actually videotaped it last night, and, and I'm on video going, I, I don't have any idea. And I'll, I'll see what I can do with that video as soon as, uh, as soon as they actually get the copy of it to me. So I guess like any individual that just doesn't know the answer to something today, um, I went on Google. And I found something really, really counterintuitive about life expectancies during the Great Depression. Um, the headline is Study, Life and Death During the Great Depression. This is from September 28, 2009, and it was published by Cyorg.com, Science, Physics, Tech, Nano, and News. Uh, so kind of a, a science journal. And what it says is the Great Depression had a silver lining during that hard time. U.S. life expectancy actually increased by 6.2 years, according to the University of Michigan study published in the current issue of Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. In other words, people live longer during the Great Depression. Now, this is interesting. Um, the findings are strong and counterintuitive, said uh, Tapi Grandos, the lead author of the study and researcher at uh, University of Michigan uh, Institute for Social Research. For the study, researchers used historical life expectancy and mortality data to examine the associations between economic growth and population health from 1920 to 1940. They found that while population health generally improved during the four years of the Great Depression and during the recessions in 1921 and 1938, that nobody tells you about, by the way, mortality increased and life expectancy declined during the periods of strong economic expansion, such as 1923, 1926, 1929, and 1936 through 37. The researchers analyzed age-specific mortality rates and rates due to six causes of death that composed about two-thirds of total mortality in the 1930s. Cardiovascular and renal disease, cancer, influenza, pneumonia, tuberculosis, motor vehicle injuries, and suicide. Does it sound, you know, we, we think that we've made so many advances in modern science. Um, but people were dying of heart attacks and kidney failures, cancer, the flu, Pneumonia during illnesses, tuberculosis, I guess we beat that one, motor vehicle traffic industries, and taking their own lives with suicide. 
Um, the association between improving health and economic slowdowns was true for all ages and for every injured cause of death except one, suicide. The only thing that people died of more during the Depression than before or directly after uh, where we don't have modern medical advances to explain the extension in life expectancy is suicide. So I guess when you're really depressed, you're more likely to take your own life. Although the research did not include analysis of possible causes for the pattern, uh, Dr. Grandos and uh, Diaz Rooks offer some possible explanations about why population health trends to improve uh, during recessions but not during expansions. And here's the kind of the gist of it. Working conditions are very different during expansion and recessions. Uh, during expansions, firms are busy and they typically demand a lot of effort from employees who are required to work a lot of overtime and to work at a fast pace. This can create stress which is associated with more drinking and smoking. New workers may be hired who are inexperienced, so injuries are likely to be more common, and people who are working a lot also sleep less, which is known to have implications for health. Other health-related behaviors, such as diet, may also change for the worse during expansions. What are we hearing here? What is this telling us? This is totally the opposite of what everything we've been led to believe about why we need constantly expanding economies and constant economic growth and always to have the band playing and always to have a good time. What I hear, when people are working a lot, really, really hard, and working long hours and spending a lot of time away from home and a lot of time away from their family and taking the things that give us traditional happiness, like family, like our homes, like putting our hands into the earth and being part of it, when we take that away, and people replace it with something false, something shiny, credit card, or whatever we can buy with that credit card, we reduce our lives. And not just in a meaningful way, where you have less meaningful lives, so our life is therefore reduced, and we have less time to spend with the people we really want to be with, so we have less life that way. We actually reduce our years, which to me means it's a double-edged sword. At the same time I'm reducing how long I'm going to live, I'm reducing the quality of life that I'm going to have. What we're starting to learn is that hard times aren't always actually hard times. They tend to put us back in touch with who we really are. They tend to teach us what we're capable of. They tend to give us opportunities that are different than the opportunities we've come to believe are good opportunities. They give us opportunities to be with people that we care about. They give us opportunities to do the things that our bodies are actually designed to do. Folks, your body is not designed to get in a car, drive for 30 miles in a seated position, go into an office, sit down at a desk in a cubicle that's 8 feet by 8 feet or 6 feet by 6 feet, depending on what kind of cubicle you have, for an 8-hour day staring into a computer screen, then get in a car and drive home, eat a bad dinner, because we didn't have time to prepare something good, sit on the couch and watch TV for a couple hours because you just don't have any energy left. Even though you haven't been expending physical energy, the mental drain of that has been intense. And to do that for five days a week and then have two days where we actually get to be who we are, but we have stress on both sides of them, most people the stress starts to build Sunday evening as you start thinking, i got to get ready for tomorrow. You know? And most people, Friday evening's not that great. I guess when you're young, you go out and party. But as you get older and you have kids to take care of, it's just another work day. So all you're left with is Saturday and Sunday. You live for those weekends. 
And what we're finding out is that people that really push the extreme live less. And that it works not just for the type A personality, but for population as a whole. That's very interesting. So while that question may not have been the most insightful question in the middle of my presentation last night, it was a damn insightful question. It led us to a really interesting answer. So as you sit and look at the potential for economic damage to this country to occur, and you think about how bad things are, realize that as long as we're still here, as long as we're still in the fight, it may be exactly what this country needs in order to heal ourselves so that we can be what we're supposed to be. It's a great question. Let's take another one. Okay, I'm going to read this one on the air. Um, this is from a, a listener. A uh, guy calls himself Tim Tim. I believe that's who sent it. Let me check real quick on that and make sure I give credit for this the right way. Now, this came from uh, Faith, and we'll just leave it at the first name, Faith. And uh, Faith sent me this little thing. It looks like a picture uh, from a newspaper article or a magazine article. Let me read the very first part of it. The, the title is Get Out of the Car. And then to, uh, to say that I can't fully vet this, it says straight up at the beginning of the article, this is a supposedly true account recorded in the police log of Sarasota, Florida. So they're even hedging it a bit. But it's an interesting read. Again, it's called Get Out of the Car. An elderly Florida lady did her shopping and upon returning to her car found four males in the act of leaving with her vehicle. She dropped her shopping bags and drew her handgun, proceeding to scream at the top of her lungs, I have a gun and I know how to use it. Get out of the car. The four men didn't wait for a second threat. They got out and ran like mad. The lady, somewhat shaken, then proceeded to load her shopping bags into the back of the car and got into the driver's seat. She was so shaken she could not get the key into the ignition. She tried and tried, and then she realized why. It was for the same reason she had wondered why there was a football, a frisbee, and two 12-packs of beer in the front seat. A few minutes later, she found her own car parked four spaces further down. She loaded her bags into the car and drove to the police station to report her mistake. The sergeant who took the story couldn't stop laughing. He pointed to the other end of the counter where four pale men were reported, reporting a carjacking by a mad elderly woman described as white, less than five feet tall, wearing glasses, curly white hair, and carrying a large handgun. No charges were filed. Moral of the story, if you're going to have a senior moment, make it memorable. So, I always tell you if you're going to carry to get training, um, I think it's also important that you realize that if you drive a car in America today, there's probably a lot of other cars that look just like yours. I've actually made a habit when I see a dark blue Jetta uh, or a light blue Dodge Ram and I'm driving either one of those vehicles, I, I usually park next to it just to mess with people. Uh, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. It sounds like it could lead to... Uh, Something I never really thought of. So, again, I don't know if that story's true or not, folks, but I'll tell you what, it is kind of humorous, and we need to all pause and laugh once in a while, even if it's at ourselves. Um, I guess the moral of the story is don't mess with old ladies, because a lot of them are armed today. I sure wish more of them were. Okay, let me read another email to you from a listener, and I'm not putting this person down. Her name's uh, Joan, and um, so she's usually turned on the podcast by her brother, Kevin. Uh, we covered Monsanto, which I've been aware of for some time. Thanks so much for your coverage and assessment. I hope it inspired people to be more visual 
uh, and act on the info. I appreciate your clarity and sensible GMO, uh, sensibility on the GMO issue. Needless to say, the newest problem is the Food Safety Modernization Act, which will require all food, including organics, to go through a radiation process first before being sold to consumers, under the guise of being for your own good. This will be administered under the FDA, uh, Food and Safety Administration, within the Department of Health and Human Services, and that's a critical element uh, to folks who are interested in real food storage. Even our fruit will be irradiated, amounting to dead food. I don't even think dried beans will be exempt. Small pharma co-ops will not be exempt. Check out the website, WashingtonWatch.com, and other sites for more info. Here's my problem, Joan, and I'm not putting you down, but I went to a place called GovTrack.us where they take all pending legislation and they crack it through the legislative process. And one of the things they do is put the entire text of the bill there so you can read it. Now, I just got this uh, today, and I, I didn't have time to read the entire bill. But I did run a search, and what I can tell you is the word radiation is not even in the bill. Now, maybe they're using a different word for it, okay? I mean, maybe it's possible that they are using a word that means radiation, uh, but radiate, irradiate, radiation is not in the bill. Um, I also looked for, like, infrared. I looked for anything that I thought could have meant that. Again, I didn't have time to read the whole, whole bill. It's long. I'm not saying this bill is not a turd. Uh, 99% of the legislation that these idiots in Washington come up with today are complete turds. They're bad. I'm sure this is not a good thing for small growers and small producers, but I can't find anything in this bill that says they're going to irradiate our food, especially organic food and fruits and vegetables. I don't think you can irradiate an apple without destroying it. I really don't. I, I mean, and not just nutritionally. I don't think it it, it, it it works very well after that. I could be wrong. I don't know. But I'll tell you what. Anybody that would like to read this bill and um, give me kind of a synopsis of the stuff that really is bad and that we can verify, please do. And, and, and I'll put a link to today's show notes. and You can tell me. But you got to stop reading people's blogs. And whatever they say is in a bill, just believe that it's in a bill because they say it's in a bill. Again, I'm not saying this thing's good. I'm not even saying faith is wrong. I'm saying I can't find the word radiate, irradiate, or radiation, or anything similar to it in the bill using the search function in Firefox. The the word's not there in the text. So what we may have is an overreaction to something. And this is what bothers me, okay? This is what bothers me when people do this. The bill itself may have some very, very bad things in it, for organic producers or small farmers. Again, I haven't read the whole thing. I don't know yet. What often happens, though, is people overreach, and then any objection to the legislation gets discredited because they get lumped in with, look, that's not even there. So let's be careful. Let's start reading legislation when we hear something about what it supposedly says. Uh, and specifically, when somebody says this thing says it, say, well, which chapter, verse, paragraph, what have you. Which line, where can I read this, where's an exact quote from it, where can I find it? Uh, without that, it's hard to credit uh, or find these sources credible. Let's go on to something else. So let's talk about a victory in the agricultural world. There was a program called NAIS, the National Animal Identification, what, what the hell was it, I don't even remember. I, I know that I hated it. Uh, National Animal Identification Act, I think is what it was called. And what this would have done, in a nutshell, is if, you had livestock at all. And this, unlike the other uh, 
food bills that came out recently where people were afraid they were going to take away your tomatoes in your backyard. It didn't apply to you if you um, you were growing a home garden. This did. This applied to everybody that kept livestock, including things like chickens and ducks and small cattle and uh, goats and things that people generally keep even in some suburban areas. Uh, it certainly applied to the large ranchers that moved lots of steers and cattle around. It applied to everybody. And what it required was... <clears throat> A, um, actually it was a national animal identification system. It required basically microchipping all of these animals and recording where they are and anywhere that they went to. And it would make it almost impossible and, and not affordable for people to do home level production and certainly small scale, uh, organic production of like eggs or, uh, raw cow milk or goat's milk or things like that. So, with that said, this thing was really a turd and it, it, it first was tried uh, as a national standard. That's why it was called the National Animal Identification System. They tried to do it at a federal level, and a lot of the states said, oh, not only no, but hell no. So it kind of fell apart as a federal mandate. So our sneaky little federales decided, you know what we'll do? We'll go down to capitals, and we'll talk to the state legislatures, and we'll get this as a recommendation to the states, and we'll get the states to adopt it and the states to enforce it. And a couple of the states started Thinking about doing it. Why? Because they took a bunch of federal money and it said, hey, how'd you like to build a highway to nowhere? We'll give you guys a couple billion dollars and just do this. And uh, they started just thinking about it. And then a bunch of people from that state, uh, one of them being Tennessee, showed up and said, don't you do it. If you do it, you're going home because we're not going to have this in Tennessee. So it got killed there and it got killed in some other states. It's been so resisted now across the United States and it got the most resistance the closer that it got to passing in any individual state. So we won. We won as a people. From the big rancher with 10,000 head to the little backyard poultry farmer with 50 chickens that sells eggs at a farmer market, we won. We told our government, you will come no further on this issue, and they collapsed. And I have that story from the New York Times, or as Michael Savage calls them, the New York slums. And, of course, they don't think that it's a good idea. At least it doesn't seem like that when I read uh, the first paragraph. It says, stiff resistance from ranchers and farmers. Notice they leave out home poultry producers, average everyday Americans, little people. We're not part of it. It was the big evil lobbyists from the ranchers and farmers. So faced with stiff resistance from ranchers and farmers, the Obama administration has decided to a national program intended to help authorities quickly identify and track livestock in the event of an animal disease outbreak. I mean, that's what it was for, people, and, and you, you ruined it. We just wanted to know if somebody got mad cow disease, where the cow came from. I think we can do that without microchipping Farmer Brown's chicken and making him fill out a litany of paperwork for every one of his 20 chickens and his 10 ducks. So no matter what the New York slimes say, no matter how much the government tells us this was going to help you, this was an oppressive, liberating, stripping, liberty strip, liberty stripping program designed to make it impossible for the small producer to succeed. See, the big farmers and ranchers they're talking about, the big lobbyists, was a loss too. Because let me tell you something, the guy that moves 100,000 head of cattle a year could have absorbed this very easily because there were provisions in this thing for the cattle to be handled in batches. 
It was the guy with a hundred head or two thousand head that this would have killed. It was the farmer with fifty or a hundred laying hens. It was the free range chicken producer. It was the free range duck or goose producer that this was really going to hurt. The little guy won. They always do this with legislation. The big corporations always the one to kill it. Big corporations are always the ones that want it. If they didn't want it, it wouldn't be for debate in the first place. This thing had billions behind it. Where do you think that money came from? Right? Do you think it was all tax dollars? Can't quite pull it off that way. Our system's not that corrupt yet. Get some of it in there, but the tax dollars come after the fact. Not to get it started. Not to get it all set up. Not to pull all the research together that says we need it. It always comes from corporations and grants and capital infusions and things like that. And that's why we always get turds of bills. Because whenever there's a bill that takes something away from the freedom of the average American or the freedom of the small business person, trust me, it always benefits somebody. That person usually is a... A, a very, very elite person at the top level of the corporate structure, and we're talking billionaires, not millionaires there, folks. Millionaires today are small business people. They're the ones that employ 20 or 30 people. We should be treating them with a little, little bit of respect. It's the billionaires and the multi-billionaires and the billionaires that have had billions in their families for generations that are controlling these types of things today. They can go down and hire a fleet of lobbyists for $100 million a year to constantly be in the ear of the people that you should be in the ear of. But this is proof that even when there's billions of dollars behind something, that you picking up the phone and saying, we will kick your ass if you do this, works. I'm overwhelmed that they, they still haven't passed health. I really am. You put the fear of God into them, at least the fear of loss of re-election into them. I'm not sure that thing's dead yet. I still think they're going to cram it up our noses. But they're sure as hell scared to do it the only way left they have to do, aren't they? You know, they're trying to pull a few more rhinos across the line. I mean, I just think maybe, we uh, totally against my prediction, that one might be too. I don't know. We'll see. But they'll never stop. They'll always do something new. I just wanted to point out today that we can win. So not only did, I mean, you think the way that Nays got taken down. It got taken down at the federal level. Then it went to a couple states. And kind of like, guys, come on, wink, wink, nod, nod, do this. The states thought about it, got shot down there, got shot down at so many times at the state level, the federal government gave up and said, okay, we're going to scrap this program. Good job, folks. That's what you can do when you realize it is your government, even if you didn't vote for them. And when you don't like something, call them up and tell them it. And when you do like something, call them up and tell them it, even if you disagree with me. I never tell you when I talk about calling your elected officials on this show. To call them up and say the following words. Call them up and tell them what you think, but be informed and be knowledgeable. And if you're calling about legislation, please do the guy you're going to call and bitch to, the courtesy of at least reading the synopsis of it first and making sure it says what some blogger says it says. Okay, back to more of a uh, typical question. This comes from a person we'll just call Stephen. Stephen says, what are your thoughts on legally concealed carrying in the workplace, even if having to use your CCW in self-defense for one's life would unfortunately mean immediate termination? More info. I drive a roadside assistance truck. Uh, my job is to try and get cars running instead of having to be towed for stuff that's pretty easily fixed. I'm quite often in the worst parts of a large city, often at night. I stay out. 
uh, and I'm in a truck full of hundreds of dollars worth of tools. However, the company policy prohibits the possession of firearms while on the job. And uh, the scenario played out for a pizza employee recently where the Pizza Hut employee uh, was carrying, and they tried to hold him up when he came to a house, and he got fired by Pizza Hut. Um, I bet that Pizza Hut employee has had no trouble finding a replacement job from a company that's pro-gun just to make a point. And I'll put it to you this way. Um, if I were you, I'd be carrying. I'd keep my mouth shut about it. I wouldn't tell anybody about it. I wouldn't make a big public stink about it, a big public statement about it. But I would be carrying. Since you're a licensed carrier, you legally can carry. It's a violation of company policy. It's not a violation of the law. If you're ever in a situation where you need the gun, you'll have it. You could save your life or the life of one of your customers. Because your customer may not be the threat. The customer may be in a dark situation just like you are. If you're ever in that situation and you need to use your gun for self-defense, you will quite literally be able to live the rest of your life with the fat got fired. If you don't have it and your life is at stake, then you're dead. Now, I would rather look for a new job than have my widow look for a casket. So in that scenario, my answer is simple. Now, if you said, I work for a company that prohibits carrying on the job, I work in a really nice part of town, I sit at a desk all day, I'd say, I, oh, man, I don't know. I think your company's wrong. But, you know, you could be seen carrying and not ever actually need it and still lose your job for that. You could get sued. Your risk factor's not that high. But a maniac can walk into an office building, too. But it's just, you're in a high-risk situation. So the decision's eat. Now, the person that is in the office situation that says the same thing, it says, hey, I'm choosing to carry even though I can lose my job for it. I don't object to your decision. I'm just saying it's not as, it's not as easy for me to quickly say, well, you should just carry anyway. Especially if you can leave your, your gun in your vehicle and you, the only time you're disarmed is when you're at work. I don't like it, but I understand that it has to be dealt with in some situations. And depending on where you are, do you have building security? Is the building security armed? There's a lot of things to look at there. And a lot of situations in a building with good armed security in the building, um, you're better off than somebody waiting on the police because they're right there. They're on site 24-7. So it all depends on making that decision. But when you tell me I'm by myself, I'm driving around on dark streets and dark alleys at night, I'm trying to fix broken down vehicles, I stick out, I have hundreds of dollars worth of tools, and I'm in the worst parts of the city when I'm doing these things, and I have my head under a hood and my back exposed, and I'm going out to help people that could be endangered too, or maybe the threat themselves, then i got to tell you that decision's easy for me. I know exactly what I would do. Not only would I carry behind my back, I'd probably have a backup weapon uh, on my ankle at that point, I'd say you're probably in as much danger uh, on a daily basis as the average beat cop walking around that city. You might be in more danger, except when he's called to a burglary or something and he has to go into a dark area. Um, just walking around or just patrolling, um, I think the cop is less of a target because people are scared of him. They know he's armed. They think you might not be. And um, I think your company's freaking out of their mind. And the problem is that these companies are so afraid of being sued, they don't fulfill their number one responsibility in America today. Ensure the safety of the people that work for you. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit pissed off the more that I think about this. What kind of screwed up freaking company 
sends a guy out unarmed into that type of situation. It's the same type of jackasses, jackass bosses that when it's snowing and icing, tell people, oh, you can get through the snow, just come on in. Hey, are they going to, you know what, when you get killed, are they going to replace your wife's husband if you're just injured in the hospital? Are they going to pay your medical bills? No. Recently we had about eight inches of snow here. My wife's boss, doctor, should be a little smarter, said, I got it, it wasn't that far, hard. He lives less than a mile from home, he drives off all highways. Right? We live like 15 miles, and she has to drive back roads to get to her office. I said, you're not going. Done. Husband, 51% veto power, inactive, done. Not going. They won't replace you. Tell them if they don't understand why, put them on the phone with me, and I will make it clear to them. It's the same thing. It's the construction worker that has a boss that's so motivated to get a job done that he overlooks the safety of his worker and sends him into a situation that he shouldn't be in. The underground worker that has, has to dig without locate services just because legally they can, because the time has expired, and the guy could get killed. And then to send somebody out into these bad areas, folks, let me remind you, if you ever rise up to a point where you own a company, and you're setting policy, or you become part of the leadership in a company where you're affecting policy in that company, don't forget the people that work for you are the only freaking reason that your company is successful. If you take them away, the company becomes nothing. It becomes an idea and a concept without action, without deliverability. And those people that work for you, you have to think a little bit like a military commander. You have a mission to accomplish, and sometimes you have to ask them to do things that are uncomfortable, but you never put their lives at risk. And the companies that do this, they should hear my words on this. If you know an owner of a company that prohibits firearms while, they're, they're, while their employees go into harm's way, give them the segment of the show. And let me tell them straight up, you're an asshole. And you don't deserve the people that are working for you to be there working for you. And there may be an employee in your company that's carrying against your policy right now. And even though you don't deserve it, someday he may save your ass. And any person that fires an employee who is legally and responsibly in possession of a firearm, my listeners, when you find out, you tell me who they are. Not that big yet. We're not Glenn Beck. We're not Michael Savage. We're not any of those guys in the mainstream. But there are 10,000 people here, and 10,000 people can make you well-known in a way you don't want to be known. And I make one promise to you. I'll do everything I can to come down on any company that terminates an employee for exercising his Second Amendment rights, especially in a situation like was just described. Sorry I went off, guys. Sorry I took a long time on it. But you know what, damn it? Sometimes things need to be said. This is one of those examples. And there's a message there for your husbands as well. Dangerous driving conditions and your wife's work is telling her she has to come. You step up, be a man, and say, no, you're not going. Because they won't replace her. And wives, you put the high heel down too. You do the same thing when that blockheaded husband wants to go out into dangerous conditions. A day of work missed is better than a lifetime in a wheelchair. Never forget that. Those two issues are very, very related. The people you care about, the people that take care of you, you take care of them back and you think about their safety, especially you corporate heads that go and write these freaking policies because some jackass lawyer told you to. 
Do you do everything your jackass lawyer tells you to? No, you do the easy things. Well, one day that decision might not be very easy when you're dealing with a widow looking at, or a, or a, a husband, a widower, looking at their dead spouse because you thought it wasn't necessary for them to be able to defend themselves. People like that make me sick. Okay, let's get off that. Let's go to something totally different because I'm just angry now. I wasn't angry when I read the question. I got angrier the more that I thought about it. Um, here's a question from a guy named Gif, G-I-F. Gif says, hey, Jack, just finished the news and events from listeners episode, and the future sounds very bleak. Do you still suggest investing a percentage into traditional investments, such as Roth IRAs? What is a young 25-year-old to do when the future economy is so unsure? And he continues with, is investing in money into a traditional retirement vehicle a waste? I understand the alternative investments, food, energy, metals, etc. Okay. First of all, understand that when you invest in an IRA, especially a 401k is somewhat limited. Your employer has a list of funds that you can pick and, and things like that. And if they're crappy funds and you don't have a good cash value fund there, uh, if you don't have a good safe investment place to move things to, and you should always have that by law. Um, but if it just looks bad, then don't do 401k. Do an IRA so you have complete control. When you do an IRA, conventional or Roth, and I would tell you always to do a Roth, especially at the age of 25 Roth, that means you don't get to do the tax deduction today, but the money grows tax-free forever. And when you pull the money out, you pay zero taxation on it. So I always say do a Roth. Every calculation I've run, the Roth always wins. Uh, there's some nonsensical financial advisors out there that say, well, if you're in a high-tax bracket today, and you'll be in a low Shut up. Shut up. Quit, quit trying to make voodoo math work. Roth is the way to go all the time. If your financial advisor gives you that story, fire him and get a new one that understands the reality of numbers because anybody that ignores math has no business helping you with your money. So, yes, use IRAs and traditional retirement vehicles. My big caveat is if you can, let's say, save, I don't care if it's $200 or $2,000 a month, split it at least in half and put half into a tax-deferred status, and put half into another type of investment. I don't care if it's cash. I don't care if it's metal. I don't care what it is, but put it into a class of investment where even though you might have to pay taxes on the gains, you have access to the money without penalty. Because you might need the money because of that uncertain future. Now, when you start talking about alternative investments, young man, like food, energy, and metals, understand that you could take an IRA and go into any of those commodities. And I think that might be a good way to do things. But IRAs are extremely flexible. You can put physical silver and physical gold into an IRA. You can put property into an IRA. Now, if you're putting property into an IRA, you have to be leasing it or renting it to somebody. You can't live there, but you can even do real estate with an IRA. And what you need is a good, quality financial advisor. And here's the bad news. 25 Lower income brackets and anything under 200000 for financial advisor, your lower income bracket. And a lot of them are going to write me and go, yeah, you're all being on financial advisors and I'll take anybody. And yeah, and you suck. Because you're trained in relationship sales. You don't know jackedly crap about investing. And if you did, you wouldn't be driving a five-year-old beat-down piece-of-crap car and wearing a suit like you have money when you don't. Okay? And that's the fundamental reality. The financial advisors that service the under $200,000 market and specifically the under $100,000 income market are nothing but relationship salespeople. They don't really understand investing. And if they do, 
They've done it through self-study, not the training they get from Edward Jones or Merrill Lynch or American Express. So you need to find the rare jewel of one that's actually creative, useful, and good. They will absolutely, you have to ask the person, did you move at least half of your customer's assets to cash if they were willing to do so between 2007 and 2008? And if the answer is no, you don't want that person. If they weren't in business then, they don't have enough experience and you don't want them either. And I'm sorry, again, if I answer, how is a guy supposed to get started? Hey, be successful with your own money. Then maybe I'll trust you with mine. Um, but that said, definitely go into IRAs, go into tax deferred annuities, do whatever you can to create some tax advantage for yourself. Just don't put all your money there. They get creative inside the vehicle. Now, could the dollar become worthless? Could the investment become worthless? I'll be honest with you, unlike all the rest of these jackasses in government and in corporate world, I tell you yes. You could have $10,000 under your mattress upstairs, and tomorrow it could be worthless. Or it could be worth $1,000. And what it'll buy today, and sooner or later, that's what's going to happen. It'll get eroded. There's all types of things that can implode the economy. Um, but here's the thing. People say that the, the, the republic is falling. The empire is falling. The economy is falling. And they always compare it to Rome. Rome took 200 years, or 300 years to fall. It spiraled all the way down. And we don't know what our future holds. And all of these visionaries that say, it's over next year, it's over next year. Remember, they said it was over next year last year, and the year before that, and the year before that. You can't plan for failure. You have to plan for both success and failure. You have to win if the economy collapses, and you have to win if the economy grows. You have to play both sides of the fence that way. So be diverse with your 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 class of investments, as in cash, metals, commodities, stocks, bonds, funds, etc., and be diverse in the vehicles with which you use to invest. Standard investment vehicles, tax-deferred investment vehicles, and pure retirement investment vehicles. Get a good quality financial advisor. Explain to him that you will never be doing the recommended contributions to tax-deferred uh, type accounts. You want to keep some of your money liquid. Here's what you have available. What does he recommend? And get recommendations from three or four. If you get three or four recommendations, and all of them are almost the same, maybe the name of the fund changes, but the allocations look the same, you're dealing with run-of-the-mill General freaking relationship salespeople that don't know their ass from a hole in the ground when it comes to investing, so go get a fifth recommendation. When you find one that sticks out as being a little bit different, as long as it makes sense with your own independent research, you've probably found somebody you can work with. But the short answer to the question, yes, use Roth IRAs, yes, use 401ks, what have you. Use them smartly, understand them, don't leave them on autopilot, and don't put all your money there. Because we very well could see the money manipulators, able to inflate this economy again over, who knows, maybe 20 years. And for a lot of people, you'll have, you know, you'll be in retirement years and able to get that money out. Do, as the money grows, move more and more of it into very safe forms of investments within there. I see a lot of people that I talk to that are near 50 years old. They've been saving for 20 years. They have half a million dollar portfolios or more. And because they're still... 25 years from retirement or 20 years from retirement or even 15 years from retirement, their advisors still have them in a position where they have 75 to 90% of their money into what I consider very, very high-risk investments. Those financial advisors should be sent down to, to, uh, 
to the, you know, like Venezuela so that Chavez can shoot them. If you have a, if you're a financial advisor and you have a 50 year old client with 80% or more of his money at risk, that client should come to your house and punch you in the face now. And I hope he's listening and I hope he comes to your house and punches you in the face and don't you call the police because you deserved it. I guess I'm a little bit angry today, but when I think about some of these things and the way that people are victimized by the system, but I gotta tell you, you gotta blame the individual too. It's up to you to know these things. If somebody's half a million dollars of your money, even if it was in a 401k, you just contributed every week without even thinking about it from your paycheck, and it, it just got there, right? that's a half a million dollars of your money. You better hold the people that, that, that have it accountable for it. You better take a personal stake in it. Let me put it to you another way. If you own a $10,000 car and I came over to borrow it from you, you'd want to know where I was going with it, how long I was going to have it, when I was going to bring it back, would I put gasoline in it and make sure I bring it back, will it come back clean, am I going to check the tire pressure, am I going to do anything dangerous or stupid with it? You'd ask questions that would get you all of that information. For a $10,000 car. And then Americans sit with $200,000, $500,000, even little ones, $50,000, $30,000, $20,000 in a 401k. And don't ask any of these questions. Don't pay any attention to it. car that's worth $10,000 today in a few years, no matter what you do, will be worth five or less. Eventually, it will become worthless no matter what you do. It is a depreciating asset. Hopefully... Your retirement account is an appreciating asset. So all I'm saying to you, folks, pay least as much attention to your retirement accounts as you do to your crappy car. If more Americans had done that, we wouldn't be in the bad state that we are today. Here's another interesting question. This guy is uh, named Adam. Adam says, can you help with podcasts where you mentioned offering to work for free to get in the front door? Numerous times I've heard you talk about offering to work for free to get your foot in the door of some place or gaining knowledge. A friend at work has a son who's graduated college with difficulty finding a place to gain his internship. I mentioned your show to him and how you discussed this. I would like to share some of the shows with him. I ran into a couple searches. He couldn't find what I was after. You're able to articulate this concept a lot better than I. So could you help with a few podcasts where you mentioned that, uh, that I would be grateful? I'll remember what episodes they were. But let me tell you the reason that people have trouble getting a job for free, getting a free internship. Okay, what they do is they look for big companies in their area. They go through the human resources department. They say, are you currently offering any internships? They get a yes or a no. Most of the time, they get a no because most companies aren't doing that right now because they don't understand the value in it like they used to. When they do get a yes, it's one of the limited programs with internships available. And the human resources person who has much bigger buyers than the next intern that's going to come there and make coffee and learn the ropes, such as how do I find a new strategic director of marketing with 10 years of experience, kind of throws you into a pile of resumes. In that pile of resumes are several hundred people looking for a job to work for little or no money as an intern, either paid or unpaid. All right? Now, you sit there and you go, boy, that sounds pretty depressing. Maybe this isn't a good way to get your first foot in the door, experience, job, training, etc. Why? Because we are completely ignoring the small business. And when I say small business here, I'm not talking about general guidelines of small businesses with, you know, under X amount of employees. I'm talking about what I consider a small business, 20 employees or less. That's a really small business. Inside a 20-person organization, any person in that organization knows which two or three people 
can almost do anything they want as long as it won't hurt the company and as long as it doesn't cost too much money. Okay? Those are the people that you're looking for. So you're looking for small businesses. So what you want to do is go to your local Internet directories that the Chamber of Commerce is provide. Look up companies. Don't look for companies with two people in them. Okay? You might think smaller is better. Well, too small is not good. The problem is if I have a company with two people in it and I'm one of them, I'm killing myself every day. Helping an intern learn how to do a job in my company, I don't even have time for that right now. By the time I have time to bring a third into a two-person operation, I'm going to have the money to pay them, and I'm going to be hiring experience. By the time I build up over ten, I've got a structure in place. So if it's a web development company, I've got a developer that can bring somebody go in and say, okay, this guy, this kid's got a little bit of design skills, a little bit of PHP knowledge. He's going to be interning for us. Sit down next to this guy. Give him some projects. Give him some direction. Use him. Abuse him. Make him get your coffee. Whatever. But make sure he's doing something productive and make sure he's learning because this young man's working for free. I want to get a look at him and see what he can do. And the only way we're paying him is through education. So make sure that you're helping him. And it doesn't matter if I'm putting you next to a, a, a guy on a lathe in a machine shop, a guy, like I said, web development, or framing a house, or landscape work. It doesn't matter. It all works the same. And when you go to a decision maker in an organization of that size, you say, look, the economy's tough. I know you're not hiring right now. And I know I don't have any direct experience. I'm right out of school. But I'm looking for an unpaid internship. I'll give you 60 days of the hardest work you've ever seen in your life, at the end of that 60 days, you can decide that you want to make me an offer that I that I somehow am generating enough for you that I'm worth taking the risk on and making an offer at that point. Or all I ask for you then, if you can't do it, is a good solid letter of recommendation detailing the work that I did for you so that I can go out and look for a job. If you do that, and you find somebody that says no, Tell me who the hell they are so I can call them up and find out what's wrong with their head. Because there's no way, even back when I was in the construction world and had guys, you know, using shovels and digging ditches, if some young man had walked up to me and said that, I would have said, here's a shovel, there's a ditch, put this hard hat on, what kind of shoes are those? Okay, get out of here and go get some steel-toed boots and get back, here's a vest, show them tomorrow morning, let's go to work, let me see what you got. Why? There's no risk for me. The bigger the company, the bigger the risk that's perceived by people. My boss will find out. You're looking for people that don't have a boss, or they have one, right? The CEO, the president, the chief investor, whatever, where they can, you know, you know what, let me just cover my ass. They make one phone call. Hey, I got a kid here who wants to work for free. What are you calling me for? I want to make sure you're okay with it. I don't give a shit. Boom, done, work. That's how it works. But it, you know what, there's one in a hundred people that you give that advice that will get up off their ass and go find those companies and do it. So you tell that young man to listen to my words today and go do exactly what I said, and I promise him if he puts his best foot forward, has the right attitude, that in two weeks, not only will he have internship, he will have his choice of which internship to take And he may be able to look at one and go, you know what, these people, because of the way I did this, are actually willing to pay me a little bit of money. I'll make some money during my internship. He may also even get to a point where he goes, these people will pay me, but I will learn so much more here. And you tell him the first job to take, I don't care how much money somebody offers you. The first job to take out of college is the one where you're going to learn 
the most and gain the most experience. Because when you come out of college, you are jack diddly shit to an employer. And as someone who's employed a lot of people, I'm telling you that honestly. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your grade point average is. That doesn't matter to me. I know that 90% of what you learn in college you will never use working for me. I want to know what you can do to improve my business operations. And if you can walk in and say, I improved the efficiency of by X percent as an unpaid intern, you got my attention. You can say, if you are a construction worker, I helped frame out 40 houses as an unpaid intern. That company's not growing. They don't have any more room. They have all good people. In fact, they have such great people that I received the best training in the world. I'm looking for somebody that needs a good framer. When you can say that, from high tech to low tech, you've got my attention. And until you can say that, I don't give a damn where you went to school. All that tells me is you're probably sitting on so much student debt, 20 years from now you're going to still be paying for that education, and I hope you're making a day off. And I hate to sound like I'm down on college education because I'm not. But I'm telling you, without experience, it just doesn't mean very much today. It doesn't mean very much at all. And the unemployment statistics for new job seekers tell you that what I'm saying is true for most of America. And I think I'll wrap up there today. My voice is a little strained. We're right out an hour anyway. Sorry if I went off a little bit on some things here, but... Folks, you got to understand something. When I do this show, it's not just about how to store food and grow a garden, put in some alternative energy. It's about how to live. And I do a show like this every day because I genuinely care about every single person that listens to this show. I still try to read every email I get. I'll be honest with you, it doesn't always happen, but I probably read 98% of the emails I get. I probably respond to 80% of them, at least with, hey, thanks for that. I do my best. When you email me and I don't email you back, I'm sorry. And when you email me a question, my response is generally by answering it on the show. Uh, So the questions I don't usually respond to. But, you know, hey, this is what I got out of your show. It's usually, hey, thanks for sharing that with me. So when you hear me get angry, when you hear me get charged up, and you hear me be pissed off at a company that would send out an employee onto a dark back alley in the middle of the night in a dangerous part of town, unarmed, and tell them they'll fire him if he arms himself, it's because I care about that person. I don't want that person dead or injured. I don't want their customer dead or injured. I don't want a wife thinking, I wish he would have just took his gun. I didn't really give a shit about the paycheck. I just want him to come home every night. When I get angry at financial advisors, it's because I've been through a lot of them. And I've learned the hard way. They really don't know what the hell they're doing. They just don't. The good advisors work with millionaires. They don't work with lower-level people. Good advisors become millionaires very, very quickly on their own because they know how to use the system properly. They don't run around to chamber of commerce meetings driving 10-year-old cars and wearing $100 suits that they've tried to make look like they're $500 suits. And it angers me. When people tell you things like, well, hey, the people that run the funds, they do the best thing with your money. Well, I know they don't because I know they're restricted by law based on the class of the fund. I get angry. When I the people that tell me that they got screwed over because their account balance cut cut in half, and I ask them, well, what are you invested in, and they don't know, I get angry again. I get angry that we've created a system that's so simple to participate in that people can do it mindlessly, and they really don't understand their own investments. When I hear a person tell me that they bought a house, and now it's worth half, and they're in the hole for $200,000, I don't know how I feel. 
until they tell me they bought a three-bedroom, two-bath house with a tenth of an acre lot that I know was never worth $400,000 in the first place. And I know that in their heart they knew it too. All of these things make me angry because I care. And because I want people in this nation empowered. Not just for the hard times, but for all times. This is a fundamental I want you to take away from today. Hard times always come from what we perceive as good times. There has never been a bust without a boom preceding it. The Great Depression came after the longest uprun in the stock market in history. Everybody was making money. Everybody was doing great. And we just found out that everybody was dying young. Or younger, anyway. Then a bust. The recession of the 70s came after the prosperity of the 50s and the 60s. The bust in 1987 came after a great buildup during the Reagan years. The dot-com bubble came after the dot-com bust came after the dot-com boom. The latest recession, depression, if you want to be honest, that we're dealing with, the latest blow to our economy came after the largest, again, run up in the highest stock market ever. You need to prepare not just for the good, not for the bad times, but for the good times too. You need to always be prepared. Because the only thing that really a booming economy means is that an equivalent bust is building up on the other side of it. That's why all these forecasters that seem like geniuses that say, it's going to crash. That's why they always seem to be right. Of course it is. Of course it is. Once it runs up long enough, it has to come down. Once it comes down far enough, it until we run it out to its end, it has to go back up. There's too much money in this country being forced into this system for it not to run these cycles. And what that really means for you is that there is no such thing as good times versus bad times. There's just life. It's up to you to choose how you live it. My suggestion is that you choose to live it with passion, dedication, and wide open eyes. That you never be a sheeple again. You never be an ostrich again. When something bad is out there, you accept it and you deal with it. But God, don't fear it. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Don't let fear push you into bad decisions. Make bold, decisive decisions. And realize that if you, if you break up your decision making, so you don't vest yourself 100% in anything. When you do have a failure, it's not the end of the world. You'll learn from it. You'll move on. And above all, like I told folks last night, trust your gut. Trust your gut in all things. When a financial advisor tells you to do something and you got a gut response, it says, uh-uh, don't do it. That innate part of humanity, that sixth sense is telling you not to do it. You walk into a room and you feel that. Get out of the room. You're walking towards your car in a dark parking lot and you feel that. Back up, get under the light, assess the situation. Something's wrong. In the middle of the night, you get a feeling something's wrong. Check it out. Something is wrong. It might end up being a very minor thing, but there's a reason you feel that way. Trust yourself. Trust yourself when everybody says everything's super, and trust yourself when when everybody says everything's terrible. Trust yourself. Trust your gut. Have your own plan. Live your own life. Command your own life. Take responsibility, both for your successes 
and your failures. Do that, change yourself, and we'll eventually change America. It won't matter who's in office. The people still do run this country. The problem is, look at the people who are running it. I know you may say you're the exception, and you may be right. But walk through any major city or town today, and look around and talk to people, and you'll see that the government, unfortunately, is a reflection of the people today. So to change the government, we have to change the people. We change the people by changing ourselves and being an example. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.